This is James 11 to seven, uh, 4, 11 to 17. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what you, will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Hello, hello, there we go. Okay, we're good. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Good. Uh, my name is Marshall, and I'm uh, the one of the lead pastors. I am the lead pastor. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, if this is your first time, we're really glad to have you. And before I get started, I want to welcome the Morris, the Morrison family. How are you guys doing? So good. It's like amazing to see you guys. Anyway, make sure you say hi to Garrett and Sarah and the kids. Uh, man, communion was powerful this morning. Before we ju- jump in, I just have to acknowledge that that was really powerful, that kind of imaginative exercise. I was having this moment on the, the front pew over here, uh, like, seeing Jesus bleeding on a cross for me, and I'm like wiping tears away, and and it was really powerful. And then my oldest son, my six-year-old son, Lewis, he leans over and he says, I imagined I was Pikachu at the cross. (laughs) So, So we're working on it. At least Pikachu is at the cross. I don't know, it's progress, right? Um, I'd like to take a quick poll. I'd like to take a quick poll, a little survey of our church. Raise your hand if your life has panned out exactly as you expected it to when you were like 19 years old, like 20 years plus whatever, however long ago. You know, you got the exact right job. You went to the exact right college. You married the perfect person for you. You had exactly 2.5 kids that you wanted. Um, <laughs> You got the promotions and the job that you planned. You live in the house, and everything worked out for you. Raise your hand if that's you. All right. (laughs) Okay, this sermon is for you guys? Like, what? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Has life ever not gone the way that you hoped it would? Like, Like, you had a plan, and it just didn't seem to work out the way that you figured? Listen, the circumstances of my life are beyond any blessing that I could ever hope for from God. To quote my mentor, Steve Fish, you lead a charmed life, Marshall. (laughs) And yet, this this charm... (laughs) Fish with a fish, it's great. And yet, this charmed life that I'm living is not at all how things were supposed to pan out for me. During my young adult years, my plan was to become a missionary, but like not like a boring missionary, like a cool missionary, 
that was itinerant and would travel all over the world. I, I essentially realized now that I wanted to be the Anthony Bourdain of church planting. I wanted to sort of travel to the, these exotic places. I wanted to eat interesting food. I wanted to meet fascinating people. I wanted to have a million exciting stories to share. And so when I was 21, Carly and I, we got married. And, um, and on our wedding program, we actually wrote that our next stop was to move to New Zealand, which was going to be the first stop on this life of never-ending adventure. But we got married in the spring of 2008. And so a couple of months into our newlywed life, the global economy crashed and collapsed. In fact, it was so bad that I got laid off from a company that had my last name on it. Yeah. My dad and I still have some work to do, right? So we prayed and pivoted. And instead of New Zealand, we, uh, went, to the, we went to the New Zealand of the Midwest. We moved to Kansas City. And, um, and we packed up all of our belongings. We had a going away party. We tearfully hugged our parents goodbye. And we set off for our new life of nonstop adventure. And when we got to Kansas City, all of our plans fell apart pretty much immediately. Rather than leadership training that we were expecting, missionary community, endless opportunities that we were familiar with, that charmed life that I've always lived, instead we were met with crippling loneliness, minimum wage jobs, and, un, and frankly, an unlivable climate, and chiggers. So we prayed and we fasted and we sought God we sought the will of God for our lives, and we ended up packing up all of our belongings, moving back to the Northwest seven months later, embarrassed by our failure, living above my parents' garage. That was 13 years ago, and here we are. 13 years later, we're still living in Vancouver, our hometown. The life of constant travel and adventure and stories, it never actually ended up happening. We stayed so close to home that we ended up buying my childhood home. I'm sleeping in my parents' old bedroom. <laughs> life didn't turn out the way that I had hoped. And as this summer, as I celebrated um, my birthday, marking one more year closer to death, I took stock <laughs> of my life. And I asked the hard questions, what happened? How did life end up this way? Did I take a wrong turn? Or when I, when I was young, was I just not hearing God correctly for myself? And to be clear, I love my life. I am so full of gratitude for my amazing family and this community that I love, a beautiful home and healthy kids and married to the woman of my dreams. As we carve our turkey this Thursday, um, you know, celebrating what we're thankful for, my list will be exceedingly long, but this is not how I expected it to go. And my guess is that each one of us could probably say the same thing, both for better and for worse. Like, we all have had unexpected gifts that God gives us, the joys that we never saw coming that were for our benefit. You know, maybe a surprise child that you weren't planning on having, who is the joy of your life. Discovering a set of gifts later in life, making a career turn and pivot and discovering your perfect fit. Maybe moving to Vancouver and finding this amazing church community. What a pleasant surprise. But then there are the unexpected challenges and trials that we experience. Getting laid off from our dream job. The promotion that never came, it always felt just out of reach. 
living a life of fitness and prioritizing your health only to have a diagnosis come that is beyond your control. And most of us growing up in America, we received messages from our youth that if you work hard enough, you could do or become anything that you would ever want to be. And yet, for a million reasons beyond our control, life doesn't always go according to plan. This morning, we're in the fourth chapter of James, and today's text, in many ways, is a very simple but core message for each one of us. What James is addressing in our lives is our tendency towards arrogance and control of other people, but also of our futures. So let's just take a little bit of time. We're going to work through this a chunk at a time, all right? Beginning in verse 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Over the last few weeks, as we followed the flow of James' thought, um, he is confronting a series of sins that are all connected to each other that are working to divide the beloved community, the church. And so he starts with the sin of selfish ambition and bitter envy. And he says that these things take root in our heart and they begin to twist our desires around. They take good things that are, meant for, that are from God and actually turn it in on itself so that they become corrupted and work against us. And then these, these desires, they lead us to devour one another, to quarrel and to fight. And he offers a solution. He says that we are rather to look to God to receive his grace and his mercy and in receiving his grace and mercy to discover that he is more than enough to satisfy all of the desires and longings of our hearts. So rather than looking, or rather than envying or looking to use other people, we are to find our deepest satisfaction in God and then, and then to, to turn that deep satisfaction, the grace, the mercy that God has extended to us outward to bless rather than harm, to give rather than to use. And the heart of repentance that leads us into true life is to humble ourselves before God so that he will lift us up. And yet, even in our being humbled and repentant, there is this, this subtle creeping arrogance that worms its way into, back into our lives and into our hearts that causes us to judge other people and begin speaking slanderously about them. The arrogance and pride that leads someone to use other people for their own gain is the same root behind someone slandering another person when they don't get their way. It stands in opposition to the humility that God requires. And James says that when we speak ill of another person, uh, not only are we judging them, we are actually judging the law. And essentially what he's saying here is that we are putting ourselves in the place of God, deeming whether a person is worthy or not, whether someone is right or wrong according to our interpretation of what is right or wrong. And in the church, we rarely speak slander so aggressively like as in the rest of the culture. We rarely just come right out and say something evil. It's usually so much more subtle. Church people have their own way of doing it, right? It's the gossipy prayer request for another person. Hey, listen, everybody. We, I just feel like we need to pray for Jesse because, you know, I mean, like, I just have a sense from the Holy Spirit probably that he's just not doing well and that things are really broken and he's making some bad choices. From the Holy Spirit, of course, I say this. 
Sorry, Jesse. Um, <laughs> or it's the critical sermon debrief. I really disagreed with how Marshall said that. It feels like he's getting off track with his theology. But, you know, bless his heart. I know he's doing the best, but we're just watching him. We're just keeping an eye on him. Anytime you hear the words, bless his heart, you know that some subtle trash talk is going down. <clears throat> but see, God doesn't look at our casual gossip and slander as trite or well-meaning. He calls it for what it is. He says it's pride. It's arrogance. And it puts us in a place of opposition against God rather than being submitted to him in humility. The slander that pours forth from our mouth, it it's used by the enemy to cut other people down, but God says that he wants us to be building other people up. <clears throat> and then he ends with, so who are you to judge your neighbor? That's God's place. That is not for you to worry about. You are to worry about building up, encouraging, and blessing. God is the one who will take care of any judgment. And then he goes on. There's another way that we put ourselves in the place of God, and it's through arrogantly determining our own plans and our destiny. So let's look at verse 13. He says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. <clears throat> a universal human experience, every single one of us in this room have, have gone through, is that things do not always go according to our plan. And to deal with this, we come up with pithy sayings that express our feelings of helplessness. We say things like, well, God's in control, or everything happens for a reason, or my favorite, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> this is so common that it's even the title of a public enemy album from 2015, to which the immediate follow-up question should be, wait, public enemy is still making music in 2015? <laughs> to which I would say, actually, I did some research. It turns out they also put out a record in 2020. <laughs> I had a feeling that wasn't going to work. We say things like this in moments when we feel like life is beyond our control. Uh, recently, a member of our church family um, passed away, Linda Bowder. And I had the honor and privilege of being able to preach at her funeral. And, um, and so with all of her gathered family and friends, uh, a number of folks I chatted with said these kind of phrases. Well, you know, everything happens for a reason. You know, it was, it was God's time. Or, you know, God is in control. We were looking for some kind of meaning in the face of our helplessness. God is in control. It must be God's will. Everything in God's timing. But these pithy sayings that we offer, looking for some comfort from them, are these things actually true of God? I guess it all depends on what we mean when we say them. If what you mean is that you are not in control of your future, of any of the events that happen in your life, but that God is, and that all of your plans are mere wish casting before a God who has already preordained everything that will happen to you, then I would say James and the rest of the New Testament writers would probably take issue with that. Consider these words. He says, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. 
When James says, if it's the Lord's will, he's not pointing us to a theology based on sort of a fatalistic, over-realized sovereignty. He's not saying that God is the intricate watch designer that has predetermined everything that will ever happen in the world, and we simply call it the Lord's will. We are essentially on a track, on a conveyor belt, and, and we will move to the end of our life with no actual will of our own. We have to remember that this letter was written in a time of great suffering in the church. Not only were early Christians experiencing persecution from both the Romans and the synagogue, but there was also a severe famine in the land. And so as Christians faced these difficult circumstances, they turned to all kinds of you know, um, remedies or bad theologies to solve their problems. Some of these people were teaching that their suffering was from God, and it was actually designed to tempt them to evil, like some kind of twisted test. Others were buddying up to rich folks, hoping that, you know, by practicing favoritism, they might be able to get ahead. Some people were playing politics, looking for ways to elevate themselves so that they might gain something personally. Some were just frustrated and angry and bitter, and their life circumstances were creating this sort of simmering anger that turned into slandering towards other people and bitter envy. And in each of these things that James is correcting, he's actually calling the church to endure and to trust in God and not themselves. God is not the author of their circumstances, but it's only in trusting in him that we can have hope in these circumstances. So think back to a time when you first encountered the gospel, the good news, and you first experienced new life with God. For most of us, this was a time of like incredible excitement and radical commitment to Jesus. But often in our lives, over time, the initial zeal of our salvation, it starts to kind of cool off and the regular pressures of life begin to sort of take more and more space in our minds. And the same thing is happening for these Christians. For some of these Christians, the zeal of their first love had worn out and now they were left to figure out how to eke out a living in very difficult circumstances. So they turned to what they were familiar with. And in verse 13, James is actually speaking to a specific group of people within the church. He's speaking of a merchant class who made their living in trade. He says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. These were businessmen and women. And these were people who were coming up with their 12-month plan to build wealth. And there is nothing wrong with coming up with a plan for your own security. But what he's addressing here is the heart. He's asking, what are you putting your trust in? And if you connect the text to what's actually coming next week, buckle up, next week's sermon is going to get raw, okay? Like, get ready. But James is confronting them for making their own plans to, make, to build their own wealth and not planning for justice and how to care for the poor that are in the exact same difficult circumstances. And James calls this kind of planning pride. He says it's hubris. It's the blind confidence that everything will work out. It's the sort of um, spinning yourself up to believe that everything is going to go exactly the way that you expect it to because you deserve it to. It's the crypto bro who confidently says, never goes down, it only goes on sale, or to the moon. Do we, have, we don't have any crypto bros here, okay. Or you're all offended, okay. <laughs> 
Now, here's the thing. God is not anti-profit and he's not anti-financial gain, but he is opposed to the pride of selfish ambition and bitter envy and arrogant, selfish optimism. As the saying goes, pride goes before the fall. Our arrogance sets us up for devastation when the unpredictability of life collides with our plans. And in verse 14, he reminds us just how small we are. He says, why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You are no more than a mist. And this is a motif that works its way throughout the rest of the Bible, throughout the wisdom literature, especially in books like Job and Proverbs and the Psalms. Our lives are described as tiny, as fleeting, a brief shadow, like grass that passes away before noon, like a mist that vanishes. It's the image of a kettle on the stove, and the the steam is rising up, and it disappears before it even reaches the ceiling. In Ecclesiastes, our lives are called meaningless, which in Hebrew is the word hebel, which literally means vapor or breath. It's this image. It's, it's that quick. It's this little bit of smoke that just disappears. This is your life. A flash, a flame, some smoke, and you're gone. And all of our best laid plans are disappearing. Unless we think that this takes us into some kind of bleak nihilism, you know, that that nothing means anything, our short lives do not equal meaninglessness or being devoid of purpose. It merely calls us to consider just how brief our years are. And it invites us into both wisdom and humility as we plan our futures. As uh, As Moses prayed in Psalm 90, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Life happens. Economies go into recession. Retirement accounts vanish. Car accidents suddenly and and instantly take away those that we love. Diagnoses evaporate our assumed futures. Our best planning unravels in an instant. You see, the world is full of all kinds of forces that affect our present and our future. And God is inviting us to be humble and to understand that life will not go according to your plans. In the words of a more contemporary thinker, an old man turned 98, he won the lottery and died the next day. It's a black fly in your Chardonnay. It's a death row pardon two minutes too late. You guys know the rest. It's like Ray Yane on your wedding day. It's a free ride, but you already paid. It's some good advice you just didn't take. Who would have thought? It figures. So (laughs) I knew that wasn't going to work, and I pressed through. I committed. I committed. So what is the posture a Christian should take in planning their future? Look at verse 15. He says, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil. The posture of a follower of Jesus is one of humble trust in what James calls God's will. But again, this phrase, God's will, it's slippery in sort of modern church terms. 
When James says, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that, he does not mean that we are resigning ourselves to some kind of predetermined sovereign inevitability. For most of church history, no one thought of God's will as God's ironclad control over everything that happens in the universe. Instead, the will of God is better understood to be what God desires, his longings, his heart, or his way. God's will is what God desires to happen in the world and in our lives. But what we see over and over again in scripture is that sometimes God doesn't get his will, which is why in Jesus' famous prayer from Matthew 6, he teaches us to pray this. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus teaches us to pray for the will of God to come to pass in our lives and in our world precisely because there are countless other wills, including our own, that often work contrary to what God desires. I remember years ago, I was a youth leader and um, I was helping to take a team of teenagers on a mission trip down to Mexico. And after the first day of driving vans full of these high school students, uh, we stopped for the night in California, and one of these students suddenly got the flu and would need to go back home. So we're on a mission trip, right? We're like Paul on a boat going to Macedonia. We are committed. Let's gather around this young girl and let's pray for her. Now, this was a church that was part of a tradition that I would I would say, has an over-realized view of God's sovereignty. So when these girls' peers started to pray for her, they prayed this. They said, God, we're so sad to see our friend get sick and have to go home, but we submit to your will that she can't come with us. So we ask that if it's your will, you would comfort her as she gets in the car and she drives home. And I literally got angry. And of course, like I was also like 18 years old, so I was angsty and full of passion and whatever. So I, the young, fiery past, pastor-to-be, tried my best to counteract all of their prayers with my faith and to see her healed. And in the end, she got in the car and she was driven 13 hours back to Vancouver. But the question is, was that God's will for her? Like after spending six months saving and fundraising and being in all of these team training meetings, God's will was for her to get the flu and have to drive back home? Like, of course not. Praying God's will means praying for what God desires for our lives to come to pass, believing that our humble prayers change things. And so as James is calling us to say, if it's the Lord will, we, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. He's calling us to live in a way that surrenders our will to the heart or the desires of God. It's living with humility and trust, knowing that we cannot control our destiny, but we are living in a direction that is aligned with God. Another way of paraphrasing James is to have a heart posture that says, as much as I can live aligned with God's desires and heart, sorry, as much as I can live aligned with God's desire and calling in my life, I will live and I will do this or that. This is less about white knuckling, waiting to see what bus is around the corner that's going to hit us according to God's will, and it's rather about obedience to the call of God in our life regardless of circumstances. Throughout history, Christians have used this Latin phrase, Deo volente, which means God willing. 
the Puritans used to use it in their letter correspondences. They would end their letters with the salutation, Deo Valente. Um, or they would say sometimes just DV. And this is the posture of the Christian heart. In all I do, Deo Valente. In all my planning, may I humbly pray, Deo Valente. And so when you make plans for your future, how much do you weigh God's will for your life? When the job opportunity presents itself, one that would move you and your family to another state or another part of the country, are you considering God's will and his desire for your future? Or are you primarily driven and motivated by opportunity or income? When you consider whether to get married and to whom, are you most concerned about your desire for someone who looks a certain way or who makes a certain amount of money or who clicks with you a certain way? Or are you praying that God would maximize your life for his purposes, even if it meant singleness? Are you looking for a, li- a mate whose life is aligned with what God is calling you to do? In the words of 1 Corinthians, are you equally yoked? As you consider your future, are you living toward God's kingdom purposes for you, or are you orienting yourself and your family towards comfort and prosperity? James calls this orientation boasting and arrogant schemes. He says that such arrogance is evil and takes us away from God. He says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Life is full of uncertainties. You never know what could be around the corner in your life. But if you sensed God is calling you to something, maybe to change course, to follow him into something that is, that is risky, exciting, something new, maybe, or maybe it's simply just not moving on from the thing that you're doing, but to actually stay the course right where you are. And if you don't follow him in obedience to what you feel like he's saying to you, he says that is actually sin. Then every one of us will have different moments in our lives where God's voice breaks through. And, and his call comes in. You can hear him nudging you in a, in a particular direction. And each one of us will be uniquely called by God to do different things. Not everyone is called to do what I do. My calling is no better or worse than anyone else's in this room. And true obedience doesn't mean living into someone else's calling. It means living in obedience to what God is saying to you. And you will be accountable for your obedience to what God is saying for your life. Deo volente. Sometimes this obedience is clear cut and obvious. God will never call you to live contrary to what his word says, okay? He will never call you into sin. He will never ever tell you to cheat on your spouse, to abandon your family, even if for the sake of mission. God's will for your life will never come at the expense of someone else. Following your heart or following your desires is not the same thing as following God's will. And his will may be costly. It might be risky. It might require great sacrifice. And the promise is, it will be worth it. Maybe not for our comfort or for our prosperity, but it'll be worth it because we experience the joy and the reward that comes through obedience. The night before Jesus went to the cross for our sins, he, he was in a garden with his closest friends and he was agonizing about what God was telling him to do next. He knew what lay before him and he was literally sweating drops of blood. And yet, as he prayed, 
he came to a place of surrender and he entrusted himself to the Father, saying, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Deo volente. And the writer of Hebrews says this about that moment in Jesus' life. He says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There is nothing greater for any of us than to follow Jesus' example. Deo volente, according to God's will. This heart posture of humility and surrender, it keeps us in a position where we can overflow with gratitude. It's a life of contentment and joy. My life is not my own. Everything I have is a gift. Everything is surrendered to God. Because this life that is a mist, that smoke, it still matters in eternity. Our destiny, even though this life is so brief and though things at times feel so chaotic and unpredictable and out of our control, this life ends with our eternal joy with God. And the pains or disappointment are real. The hardships that we endure matter, but ultimately it's vapor, it's smoke. And what awaits each one of us as we surrender our lives one time and daily to Jesus, Deo Valente, Deo Valente, Deo Valente, is that one day we will hear the voice of the Father rejoicing over our simple obediences. And so may this become the cry of each one of our hearts, Deo Valente. Amen? Will you stand with me?